From the Garrison Institute, this is Climate, Mind, and Behavior. I'm Eleanor Bennett. Each episode, we'll explore groundbreaking intersections between climate change, resilience, contemplative practice, and human behavior. Today, we'll hear from young people around the world, youth living in India, China, New Zealand, and the United States, tell us how they're feeling about climate change and what they think we can do better to care for each other and our fragile planet. They are writers and editors for Kids Spirit, a nonprofit online magazine that's written by youth for youth. Founded by Elizabeth Dabney Hodgman, this community of 11 to 17-year-olds have been engaging each other about life's big questions since 2008. Even the ancient Indians, uh, from the earlier times, uh, they used to worship Earth a lot. Uh, we even nowadays we consider Earth as a uh, Earth as a mother. This is Aditya Nayak. He lives in Maharashtra, India, where he's on Kid Spirit's Aurangabad editorial board. Aditya likes to hang out with his friends and read a lot. When he grows up, he says he wants to engineer automobiles that would emit less CO2 into the atmosphere. And he wrote this wonderful essay for Kid Spirit called The Philosophy of Hari that was published in their climate change issue. I'll let him talk about it. Yeah, actually I wrote that article in order to, uh, you know, connect the ancient world to the modern days. Uh, because, and even I had recently learned about the climatic changes when I was in 6th or 7th grade. So I thought, why not to write a story? And uh, actually I was overwhelmed because I was uh, writing a story which was going to protect the mother earth. You know, uh, so that was a great experience for me and I was really happy to write that story. As I was reading it, I noticed that one of the most powerful moments, at least that stuck out to me, was when Hari's sheep is killed in the forest. And it's yeah. this moment where despite the loss of his sheep, he decides that he doesn't want the king to destroy all the trees for future generations. And I'm wondering, what do you think allowed him to see beyond himself and into the greater good of humankind and also the earth? Yeah, of course, you know, there are a lot of good people in the world. Uh, there were earlier and there are now. So, you know, I think Hari was one of the persons who was, uh, who was selfless. Who used to believe that even though I I have um, I have to suffer through losses, my future generation should not. And so I think he must have not thought of the loss of a sheep, but he was uh, he must have thought for the betterment of uh, humankind and the earth because you know. And even the ancient Indians uh, from the earlier times, uh, they used to worship Earth a lot. Uh, we even nowadays we consider Earth as a uh, Earth as a mother. And so I think that must be the reason Hari did not think of his loss. He thought the greater good of all humankind and the earth. So, you know, there are a few people who do not think about themselves a lot, but believe that, yes, there, there, must, be, uh, uh, there must be good uh, in every loss even. So I think Hari was one of them. And so you sort of mentioned this earlier, but can you tell me a little bit more about when you first learned about climate change and, and how you felt when you learned about it? Uh, yeah, actually, officially, we were taught about climate change in the sixth grade. Uh, but they used to discuss about this drastic, uh, I would call it a natural disaster. 
so they should discuss about this and they should always discuss that how can we protect the earth from all these things so uh, i learned about the climate change i would say from the third and the fourth uh, i was not that deep uh, i was not that deep thinker when i was in third and the fourth grade because i was very small at that time but later when we were officially taught about uh, the climate change then actually i was worried even and even i was uh, you know tense that what would happen to the earth now especially in the 6th grade you're just starting to to understand that the things we do now and today can actually affect the earth for generations to come how do you feel now and how does that compare to the way the grown-ups in your life are addressing or or thinking about climate change yeah of course they are worried and even i am actually because uh, now what happens that climate change is not currently improved a lot but you know steps are taken by the indian government and especially the delhi government you know they are implementing a system of odd and even that is uh, suppose it's monday today so only vehicles with odd numbers can run today and others uh, which own vehicles with even numbers may use the public transport and even the adults are worried uh, you know they are even worried in uh, today's life because as i told you i used to hear them when i was in third and the fourth grade so that shows their worry towards this climate change and even they are taking steps so everybody is worried about this yeah and i'm wondering what your spiritual or religious background is what you grew up with and and if that shapes your views or your action on climate change at all yeah actually consider earth as a mother in uh, in the religion which uh, we follow that is hinduism so there are uh, a specific uh, there are a few rituals which are specifically me meant to protect the animals and the trees so i think that kind of attitude that kind of religious background really shapes my mind into uh, caring for the earth and protecting the earth so what what do you think young people have that's unique that can sort of help them overcome the challenges of climate change uh you know young people are mainly students so these are enthusiastic people yeah i'm 100% optimistic about the future of the planet because you know there are still as i told you good people there on the earth you know people like you thank you it was such a pleasure to talk with you today adicha thanks a lot i enjoyed talking to you without faith i don't think that uh, anything would be possible this is jungwoo bay jungwoo's 17 just graduated from high school he was born in seoul south korea and moved to new zealand when he was still a little kid when i asked him what he'd like to do when he's older he said he hopes to study medicine and become a doctor who writes novels jungwoo's also the founder of kid spirits new zealand editorial board He wrote this beautiful essay called The Giving Earth for their climate change issue. Here's a little part of it. Well, so it's stuff like this. Um years ago, I remember reading a short story called The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. It went something like this. Once there was a tree and she loved a little boy. Throughout the story, the tree sacrifices parts of herself for the boy so that he will be happy. I wondered if humans could actually be the boy of the story and the tree of the earth. When we think about it, Earth does its best to provide us with its resources. But like the boy, our demands on the Earth have become too great. People's choices, our choices, can lead to the greener future we envision. And the boy loved the tree, and the tree was happy. 
The earth loves us, and it is a shared home. Just like the giving tree, the earth cares for us. It's time to offer some kindness in return. It's amazing. It's such a perfect metaphor. And mm. I'm wondering if, if you can talk a little more about how learning to appreciate or even love the earth has helped us in the face of climate change, or how it can help us. Yeah, um, so if we learn to appreciate and respect the earth, then I think our attitudes towards um, earth will change. And with that change in attitude, we won't be, um, in a way, taking the earth for granted. Um, so we'd be more considerate of our actions and uh, you know, we'd put in more effort to um, create a more sustainable uh, environment for us to live in. Wondering if you can remember when you first learned about climate change and how it made you feel. Um, I remember doing a project uh, on climate change back in uh, year six, um, but I think it did make me feel a little anxious. It sort of um, instills in you a desire to take action. And I did feel a bit of hope because I knew that I had faith in science and technology and I had faith in scientists and uh, environmentalists and also um, the global citizens uh, in general. Absolutely. And, and I'm wondering if, if you grew up with a religious or spiritual practice. I did. I, um, I grew up as a Catholic and as a Catholic you, you learn that you know, because God has given earth as, as a gift, you need to um, preserve it um, as best as you can. And also as a Catholic, I've become uh, familiar with several passages in the Bible, and I guess the most notable one uh, in terms of climate change would be uh, Noah's Ark. And I think that, that story has influenced my perspective on climate change, and I think it serves as, an, as a good allegory in terms of um, the topic of climate change, because, um, you know, if we don't start preventing um, and start preparing, then uh, just like how the flood uh, brought about tragedy um, and catastrophe, then, you know, it may uh, backfire on us. So I think definitely being raised as a Catholic um, has you know, shaped my response to climate change. And I'm wondering if you see prayer as having informed your reaction to climate change at all, or there's a connection there in, in any way. Yeah, I do think that prayer is um, a form of um, you know, fostering hope um, and hope for the, um, the future, and that uh, we may, um, in the end, uh, live in harmony with nature. You know, if without faith, I don't think that... Uh, anything would be possible. So, which yeah. leads me to my next question. You you mentioned hope, so I'm wondering, are you optimistic about the future of our planet? I am optimistic about the um, the, uh, the future of the planet. It's hopeful to see that um, you know measures are being taken internationally to to combat climate change and um, create a safer and more sustainable environment for us to live in. I do think that um, we'll be able to uh, to prevent you know, that catastrophe like the flood um, taking place uh, in the Bible um, you know, through the means of science and 
technology and um, and also through faith and hope. Thank you, Chung Wu, for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Spent a lot of my early childhood life thinking about how am I connected to the food that I'm eating and how am I, how am I connected to the outside natural world. Meet Skylar Salik. She's 17, about to graduate from Phillips Academy Andover. She says she joined Kid Spirit after hearing her older brother talking about the member meetings he'd go to. Today, she's the founder of Kid Spirit's Massachusetts Editorial Board. When I asked Skylar what she'd like to do in the future, she said she's really interested in virtual reality. She'd like to use it to generate empathy across cultures. And for Kid Spirit's climate change issue, Skylar wrote this poignant reflection on a book that deeply moved her, The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. I asked her to read just the beginning of it. Close your eyes and envision what you ate for your last meal, whether cornflakes for breakfast or a turkey sandwich and chicken soup for lunch or a juicy cheeseburger for dinner. Now try to pinpoint the starting locations of each aspect of the food you consumed. Challenging, isn't it? Yes, it is. (laughs) So my last meal was breakfast. I had oatmeal with cinnamon and nuts, and I really don't know where any of those ingredients came from. And I'm wondering why you decided to ask your readers this. So while I was reading Michael Pollan's book for My Kid Spirit article, I thought a lot about how his research intertwined with my life. So I often found myself questioning my food, especially since when I was writing this, I was eating at a boarding school in a dining hall. So you really don't have a sense for where your food comes from. And to me, that was what was so great about Kid Spirit, the fact that it really enabled me to relate these global issues, such as where our food comes from in the world of mass-produced um consumerism, kind of how those global issues interact with your personal life. And that, to me, was something that I really found interesting while reading this book and writing this uh, review. And was that sort of the first time that you'd really asked yourself that question, where where does my food come from? Not particularly, actually. I grew up going to a Montessori school, so we spent a lot of time focusing on Earth and our personal connections to earth and the environment that we surrounded ourselves with. Um, So, you know, I had kind of spent a lot of my early childhood life thinking about how am I connected to the food that I'm eating and how am I, how am I connected to the outside natural world? So this was not really a new concept for me necessarily. Yeah. It's definitely an amazing upbringing to be thinking about those questions early on. So in in the review, you talk about making homemade ravioli for the first time. And I'm I'm wondering what significance this experience had for you. Well, in Michael Pollan's book, he talks about creating a hunter-gatherer meal where he he took and created each aspect of his food from the earth. And... I don't know, that part of the, his writing just really stood out for me because it was paired with him eating food that he had no idea where anything came from. And so to see how he took experiences in his own life. And my family's always cooked a lot and definitely put a lot of emphasis on 
cooking as like a family activity. And I think for me, what made this stand out was that I was cooking with my friends actually, and we were taking something and turning it into something completely different. Whereas you're taking flour and eggs and making it into pasta instead of just boiling water and boiling pasta. So I think that was special in that way to see how these experiences that Michael Pong was having related to my life as a teenager. I imagine that for you to see each ingredient, you maybe felt more connected to the food that you were eating in a way. Definitely. I'm wondering if you think there's a relationship between climate change and this disconnection you're talking about that we have with our food and the land that it comes from. Yes, absolutely. I think that climate change is definitely related to that. I think it all comes with a disconnection that we see in the pureness of the earth. We've kind of lost touch with the natural world just because, especially in America, things move so quickly and we're focused on so many different priorities that I think we're almost unable to see the true impacts of climate change and that relates to our food because then we're not as... We're not emphasizing how important pure food really is. And, and so that brings me to my next question, which is what do you think young people can bring to the climate movement and to overcome those challenges that you just mentioned? I think young people can bring a lot to the climate movement. Um, I've always been really interested in, in how young people can affect different movements. And I've seen recently in a lot of European cities, such as Copenhagen and Amsterdam, they're really focusing on training new climate generations as part of their um, as part of their climate action plans. That's a huge part of their plan is to train this next generation and really have them be forces in the climate change movement. And I think that should be a goal of America as well. And I think that there's a huge, huge possibility for what we can do and for how we can get involved. And there's definitely going to be a positive impact. Absolutely. And and what do you think I mean, do you think that young people have a kind of different perspective on the issue? Is that part of why these European countries are choosing to focus so much on the youth? I mean, potentially because we've grown up so much with climate change, but I think it's that in America we rely so much on policymakers and world leaders to make our decisions for us, and less so the greater community of the American people, whereas I think in a lot of European cities, the mentality of climate change is not necessarily policy-centric, but it's more about helping the earth while also giving the people of the country a better way of life. And I think that's a disconnect that we have here in America. And And I also think, in a way, younger generations are the most affected generations. So I agree. There's that as well. Mm-hmm. Are you optimistic about the future of the planet? I want to be optimistic about the future of the planet, and I think that we can kind of come together and make an impact and kind of see the see how crucial this really is. This was so wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let me know if I can help you out in either way. Like in Winston-Salem, like the sky is clear, it's always sunny, and in China, it's like there's lots of smog, there's lots of smoke. It's, it's the air is just really bad there. 
That's Nathan Zhang. He's 13, about to finish middle school. He was born in Kentucky and then lived in China for three years. His family just moved again from Beijing to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He says he liked making new friends in his eighth grade class. When I asked him about his future self, Nathan told me he'd like to build things with technology, things like the computer he built a couple months ago. He also said he'd like to be a writer. Back in Beijing, Nathan wrote this poem for Kid Spirit. An ode to smog. Oh, smog, thank you for keeping us inside, preventing wicked physical activity from its stride, for coloring the world with your lovely gray sky and freshening the air with high AQI. Look at the wonderful PM2.5 particles in the air, common in China, very rare elsewhere. And you have a delightful, smoky scent that makes me let go of all my hate and resentment. Oh, smog, I wouldn't know what I would do without you, but just want to cry and wash the sky with tears from my eyes. I really, really love that poem. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it's a... Sort of a sarcastic poem I wrote because um, every day in Beijing, the air is really bad, but you sort of get used to it, and it's almost sort of normal to have really polluted skies and really polluted air, and uh, I thought that was something really worth writing about. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it was, it is sarcastic, but at the same time, a little bit emotional because you're breathing that air every day, and so... I guess I'm wondering what it felt like to write that poem. Can you remember how you felt? Really, um, I felt happy, sort of, to uh, let all my emotions about uh, all this uh, horrible air pollution out. In Beijing, there's this air quality index, or AQI, and it if it exceeded uh, 250, um, then we couldn't go out uh, for uh, physical education. We had to stay inside in the gym, or uh, our school actually just built this huge dome outside so we could uh, do stuff in PE when it was, like, really, really bad, which means it was very unhealthy. And also, um, in China, the sky was uh, really, really gray because of all the smoke that was being blown out of the factories, and you had to wear air pollution masks so we could breathe fresh air. Wow, that's intense. And and I wonder, what did it feel like to to be told that you couldn't play outside on certain days? I felt really sad that we couldn't. And when we could go outside, when it was really clear outside, it was really, really, really amazing to uh, be outside. But do you think for the kids that have only lived in Beijing, did it feel normal to them? Yeah, it felt like really normal. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to think about. Um, can you tell me a little more about that last line of your poem? I think it goes, Oh, smog, I wouldn't know what I would do without you, but just want to cry and wash the sky with tears from my eyes. I, when I was writing this line, I remember the story that my fifth grade teacher told me that in Beijing, it's the only city that when it rains, your car gets dirtier than before it rains. So if I really wanted to wash away pollution, I couldn't do it with regular rainwater, and I'd really probably have to do it with my tears. Wow. Um, so can you remember the first moment 
when you learned about climate change? Oh uh, yeah, it was during the fifth grade. Um, in our impact unit, where we tried to do something to uh, help the planet and help our community. Like me and my partner put out signs to wear bike helmets. Uh, because lots of people bike to school, but um, during then I learned about climate change, and at first um I didn't really feel anything because I didn't really think it was that big of a deal, and only later did I learn that um, it would affect the world, it would be a really big problem for the world in the future. Um, how does that make you feel now, knowing what a serious problem it really is? Um. I feel sort of scared because, um, for the future, because all these predictions about climate change, how, like, coastal cities will experience massive flooding, like, in 100 years, um, the Maldives will be completely underwater, and that makes me feel, um, really sort of scared for the future. And what do you think about the grown-ups in your life? Do they seem worried? I I think they seem really less worried uh, than us. Because um, I think they realize that it isn't really their problem to deal with, and this is our generation's problem. But uh, my parents have also expressed like uh, concern about climate change and how the world is warming. I think there's also this element of, in some ways, it's it's harder for grown-ups to change their minds. I'm just thinking of how when you're young, your job is to to be in school, to take in new information, and to learn from it. And once you're an adult, you forget in some ways how to be open and how to how to change and how to realize that as a, as an older generation, we've made mistakes that we now have to we have to right those mistakes and and combat climate change. You know? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. Lots of old people have things have um. It's really hard, like you said, to like change their mindset about things. And do you think? that young people can kind of overcome those challenges? Absolutely. Like, um, I think that we can all do, like, small things, like um, turning off the lights after you leave a room to save energy and also just spreading the word about climate change and how you can uh, reuse and recycle things. And if everybody does sort of these small things, it'll lead up to a really big difference. Yeah, and and do you see your friends doing some of those things? Yeah, I see my friends doing these things. Like we uh, carpool to school together, and we also like sometimes talk about climate change. I didn't learn about climate change until Al Gore's movie, A Unconvenient Truth. Right. Exactly. So it didn't come out until I was fourteen, and that was the first time I learned about climate change. So you're way ahead of me. I think there's there's value in growing up knowing that this is a problem that we need to address. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that because this is going to be uh, one of the biggest, not if not the biggest problem in the next like fifty to one hundred years, and it's better for people to be informed about um what they can do about this. Given all the the bad news that we hear every day, are you optimistic about the future of our planet? Uh, yeah, I'm actually really optimistic about the future of our planet. I think more people than not, especially young people, believe in climate change, and they know about it, since it's going to be our generation's problem to solve. And innovations like renewable energy, uh, alternative energies, geothermal, solar, wind, are going to 
helpless um, stop being so dependent on fossil fuels, then I think that these innovations will help uh, combat climate change, and I'm very optimistic for the future of the planet. People like you are giving me hope, so I'm grateful for that. Uh, thank you for inviting me on to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me today. To learn more about the Garrison Institute's Climate, Mind, and Behavior program, visit garrisoninstitute.org, where you can also listen to an archived podcast of this show. Join our mailing list and sign up for our monthly email newsletter, delivering the latest research and programs from around the world that promote resilience and a changing climate right to you. Our theme music is composed by Zoe Keating. You can find her music on iTunes or on her website, zoekeating.com. Thank you.